You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Today we conclude our year-long journey through the Sermon on the Mount. We spent the last several weeks studying the the concluding section uh, of this great sermon where Jesus basically teaches us how not to crash and burn in our lives. And he finishes by warning us about several things that are out ahead in our future. Of the uh, many sayings of Jesus... None is more crucial than our text this morning, which is about the narrow gate, which is found in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. This passage, by the way, is also the basis for the most offensive of all Christian doctrines, and that is... That believing on Christ is the only way to God. Only Christ is the way to God. Today, I want to speak very plainly uh, about both the truth and the offensiveness of this doctrine. And much about this final section of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, here is what Jesus says that causes such an uproar. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate And narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Wow. You read that, it's it's pretty clear that he's dividing humanity into two camps. The saved and the lost. Saved and the lost each camp choosing a different path. One that leads to a tragic annihilation of some kind and one that leads to deep, um, everlasting life. And he's urging us, of course, to take the right way. It's a sober warning that, that uh, there are real consequences to the choices that we all make. Whether to be among the few who seek God and believe in him, or among those, the masses of people who ignore the whole idea of God. They're kind of sleepwalking through life with regard to that subject. And when asked, they, they kind of just hope for the best. They don't think about it that much. 
That's the mass of people. But what he's describing is a life and death decision here that every person needs to make. And you're going to see that this is really a decision and not really about a stone gate, but it's really a decision about what are we going to do about him, about Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the way. No one comes to the Father, meaning no one comes to God, except through me. Jesus is the narrow way. Oh, you can just, if you've talked about this with someone out on campus or in your family, you know that this is, this is stirring people up, this idea. Now, this does not mean, this, what he's saying, that salvation is difficult. It only means that there is only one way to reunite with God. But it's not difficult to enter the narrow gate. And it's clear, by the way, that the early Christians, that's how they understood what Jesus was saying. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. And those early Christians, they lived like they really believed that Jesus was the only way. The ancient church was persecuted. Not because they worshipped Jesus. They were fed to the lions, although not in the Colosseum of Rome, but in other places. Because they would not also worship pagan gods and goddesses. Or they would not worship the emperor, a real offense. Or they wouldn't even mix worship of anything or anyone with their worship of the one true God. The God of Abraham, Isaac. Why did my brain just go out on me? Jacob. See, that's going to happen more in these next years. I'm telling you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They saw that the God of the Bible had called them to worship only him. The bedrock of our spiritual foundation is that Jesus and Jesus alone is God's way to life. There is one way to be saved. There is one way to repair our relationship with God. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is Christian orthodoxy. Anything less is heresy. Anything less is heresy. 
Now, what's the reaction to this on talk shows, on on uh, cartoons uh, like uh, who's who's Bart Simpson? The Simpsons, you know, they make fun of this. When this message is heard, there's all kinds of objections. Naturally, there are, and they come fast and furious, don't they? In different ways. Let me do kind of the, the angry way that we might hear it, okay? You're telling me that your way is the only way? Who are you to say that? Who made you God? You ever hear that? You know, something like that? No? Not everybody's that fierce, okay? Especially today. That's the way people used to talk to me when I was in ministry, like in the 80s. Now everybody's really nice. And they'll say things like, well, you know, there are 7 billion people in the world. How can your way, how can, how can it be the only way? Now, there are more objections than these two, right? But these are the ones that stand out. So I'll start here, and and we'll look at them one at a time. So first, um, who are we to say that Christ is the only way? Now, I don't want to sound snarky here, and I sure wouldn't want to sound snarky if I was answering somebody, okay? But it's really not us who's saying it. We're not saying that Jesus is the only way. It's Jesus himself that is saying he is the only way. And you know what? This is the Jesus, the loving Jesus, you know, with the little lamb and who's sitting with the children. You know, the the Jesus that almost everyone in the world respects and, and admires. He is the one that's giving this severe warning. Let's try in some non-snarky way to bring that up when we're accused of being uh, like God, saying it ourselves. And And it is important, as we talk to people, that we as Christians carry the message of the gospel as God's message, not our own. We don't want to do, listen, Jesus is the only way, I'm telling you. No, don't don't do that. We have to be kind of humble and and gentle spirited. You know, it just it's saying here. Jesus is saying here, and that's maybe the tone it ought to be. But that other question, you know, there are seven million, seven billion people in the world. How how can there be just one way? Well, first, let's, let's do this. Let's keep in mind that while God's way is singular, notice that it's not exclusive. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. The way is open for everyone. Not just for a privileged few. Right? St. Paul, he wrote that God our Savior wants all men to be saved 
and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. St. Peter wrote that God is patient with people, patient with all people. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That, that's the admission to the narrow gate. It's, God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The narrow gate is narrow, but anyone can go through that gate. Okay, let's keep working this. Let, let's just pose the question again. How is it that there can be only one way? Now, I personally love very thorough answers to questions like this. And so, you know, sermons from me might go an hour if you'd let me, but they, they, they don't let me do that here. So some people, they prefer simple. So let me give you a simple answer about one way. Here's the simple answer. Jesus is the only way because God is the only God. And he's made a way for us to reunite with him. And this is it. That's simple. But it's that word only, isn't it, that really grates at people. Only. This burns when they hear it. It's just, it's, a, it's like chafing at people that we say that so often. In today's way of thinking, that has to be wrong, that there's one and only one way. Uh, this author, um, Paul Copan, he writes in his book, True for You But Not For Me, that today's ultimate vice is making any kind of an exclusive claim. To the skeptical mind, this evangelical uh, claim of Jesus being the only ways is, is so arrogant. It's so triumphal. It's so white privilege. But, you know, an emotional reaction is almost inevitable to this. And, you know, many of us who want to be sensitive, we... we we hear this reaction and we and we have to wonder are we arrogant um, and so t- some of us are tempted to think so and and, and we're, we're grieved at the thought that we might be but wait a minute isn't there some reverse intolerance being expressed here? Isn't there kind of an exclusive claim being made on their side as well? Yeah. Um, When we say that Jesus is God's only way, uh, it does mean that we believe that the various world religions and their, their truth claims are lacking in some way. Yeah, we do say that. But let's not miss that those who disagree with us that believe that our truth claims are also lacking 
in some way. They're not neutral. They may see themselves as tolerant and and as pluralists, but they are not neutral. And they are themselves intolerant, at least against the cross being necessary for salvation and that the narrow gate is the only way. They are intolerant of that. Why, though, does it surprise anyone that there is a one specific way to get to God? Why are we surprised by that? Aren't there a lot of things in this world that have one and only one answer? There's only one liquid that can sustain life? Water. There's only one gas that'll keep us alive, and that's oxygen. When my aunt had a heart attack, there was only one way to keep her from dying. It was an immediate heart bypass. Within one hour, they took her in. There weren't several ways to save her life. There was just one. Interpersonally, our relationships... They require specific actions at specific moments where there is a specific problem. If you wrong someone, you simply must apologize and make it right if your friendship is going to survive, right? The point I'm trying to make is that life continually demands specific, precise solutions responses from us, ones that are correct rather than incorrect. So it shouldn't seem strange that there be a specific way to reunite with God. I don't think so. All right, a lot of, a lot of philosophy. Here's, here's the part where I want to just speak real plain. What is it about God requiring people to do something specific that so offends people? Here it is. I think it's plain and simple. People don't like to be told what to do. No. The vast majority of people don't want to be ruled, so they don't want a Lord, and they do not want a God. They don't. They're not worried about that there's one way or maybe two ways. They don't want to take any way to God. At our core, we really are independent and rebellious. And that's why so many people flood down. uh, They're unwilling to take the narrow gate and they're, they're flooding down the wide open gate. Because they know that it means surrendering their lives to God, which they have no desire to do. So whatever way we would give, they don't want is this it's going to that God. The vast majority of people have no desire to be in a relationship with a commanding God. No, they're taking that wide gate and they have no idea 
where it leads. But that's where they're going. I mean, of course this is true for outlaws and dictators and proud people and self-centered people, people who religiously or sexually or politically uh, control or oppress people. Sure, it's true for them. They're not going to go down uh, the narrow path. And also those people who simply are going to live for their pleasures, now they're not going down that, through that narrow gate either. Now, to these people, the whole group, uh, the narrow gate and the cross, they're the stench of death to those people. Which often, that stench, that, uh, that outrage about the cross and about the exclusiveness of salvation in Christ. It's so offensive that in many parts of the world, it leads to, to violent persecution of Christians. Jesus said, they are going to hate you because they hate me. And that's true. We don't experience that here in Illinois. But around the world in numerous places, that is a palpable experience. But you know, um, I don't know about you, but I am surprised at how often I meet very, very nice people, model citizens, good friends, family members, that have no interest in knowing God, let alone following him. No interest at all. It's always been something of a mystery to me. Now, none of this disdain for himself is a surprise to God. The prophet Isaiah in 700 B.C., he predicts that the coming Messiah, which we realized was Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah would be a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them trip and fall. The Messiah is going to offend people. In the New Testament, the phrase stone of stumbling is the word scandalon, where we get the word scandal. Christ is a scandal. The cross is a scandal. The biblical morality is an outright scandal to people who don't want God. The morality there is an outrage, repressive, hate it. They hate the limitations because they cannot understand it. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God for their foolishness to them. Not only is what we believe offensive, but it seems foolish, ridiculous. And the apostle is, is right on in describing this. And so it makes sense that the road to destruction is crowded. So what do you think? What do you think that God feels as he watches all of this rejection that people have 
after him or feel about him. Well, we go way back. I don't know how you call it prehistoric times or or minimal historic times back in Genesis, the stories there. But the people of the earth, we read, were out of control. It was a mess of violence and selfishness. And as the Lord looked upon it, in Genesis 6, we read that the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. That's what he's feeling. This is not to say that making man was in his mind a mistake. It only means that that his choice to do so has brought him grief all through history. It has brought him grief. Now, Jesus, God, God's Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 9, we read about the grief of Jesus. Look at his heart here about people's rejection of him. Luke 19, beginning at 41. You're not going to have this up on the screen, I don't believe. We read that as he approached Jerusalem, and he saw the city full of people that had rejected him. People were like sheep without a shepherd. We read that he wept over it. He wept. He said, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, which is me, but now is hidden from your eyes because you've rejected me, it would be great. But he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you in in the person of myself, of Jesus Christ. And he grieved that with tears. And he grieves that with tears today for the masses in our nation that scoff at the Christian faith. The calamity missing God's way is so tragic that in this passage, he warns us three times, just in this short text alone. First, he says, no matter what, get this. It's like he would say it this way. No matter what, do not miss that narrow gate. You hear me? You, you look at, like what do parents with little children, you know, look at me. <laughs> did your mom and dad do that? They just wanted you to meet eyes. Paul, put that candy down. Listen to me. Look at me. Now, he's not patronizing like a dad is to a child, but he's really like that. He's saying, listen, do not miss Narrow gate. Next, he says, also, Matthew 7, 15, 
beware, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inside they're ravenous wolves. Do not be deceived, he's saying, by false teachers. I wish I had the time today to speak carefully about the dangers of man-made religion. But I'll bet most of you have heard this little illustration describing the world's religions as various roads up the same mountain and how they all meet at the top, you know, which is God. On the surface, you know, we look at this analogy, and on the surface, the picture looks so democratic. It seems so fair-minded, doesn't it? But we got to stop. Look underneath this analogy. Look, look, step back. Do you see the hidden condescension, condescension in this? Notice the amazing location of the person who sees all the roads going up the mountain. This observer is standing high above everybody else in the perfect spot to tell you and I how to understand our path to God. Let me tell you, this is, this is it. Hardly a humble position. Another flaw in the, all the roads up the same mountain analogy is that according to the world's religions, we're heading up different mountains, really, because the, the major religions of the world do not agree. They do not say the same thing. Their moral teachings often agree, but on many serious points, there is disagreement. They do not agree at all on crucial issues. Christianity says that Jesus Christ was God come in the form of a man. Islam says, no, Jesus Christ was a man speaking as a prophet. Now, he can't be both divine and not divine. Someone is wrong. Christianity says that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. Islam says, no, he didn't. He didn't die. The Quran, speaking of the death of Jesus, of Christ, says they neither killed or crucified him. It had only the appearance of it. Somebody's wrong. Hinduism and Buddhism, they say that God is an impersonal force. Christianity says that God is a person with a mind and a will. Hinduism and Buddhism both say that the universe has always existed in the form that we see it today. Christianity agrees with modern science that the universe has not always existed, but was created out of nothing sometime in the distant past. Interesting. Kind of being blunt here. My experience is that most of the people who say the Religions of the world ultimately agree, do not really know that much about religion. And usually, they are not religious people themselves. 
You're not. Now, as Christians, I know we are called to be tolerant. We are to to be respectful of every person's beliefs. But tolerance does not demand that we believe that all religions lead to the same place or that we should um, shrink back from saying or from trying to persuade someone of an essential truth, an important truth. Okay, then then there's this third warning. Um, And it's interesting. He warns us not to think that being religious is an answer to anything. You know, as you're working all this out, don't think that religion is an answer to anything. Anything. Isn't that interesting? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many people, he says, will say to me on that day, meaning the day of judgment that we will all face. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and do various miracles? I mean, these people were amazing. All very religious stuff. He says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In Jesus' mind, do you hear this? In Jesus' mind, it's all about relationship. He says, I never knew you. A friendship between us never existed. But that's what really mattered. So I'm just wondering, you know, if you know you here this morning, do you have a relationship? With God. Do you? See, the big difference between Christ's message and the message of every other major religion is that Christ, in Christ, a relationship with God is restored. And it's and here's what's important. The relationship, God takes the initiative to begin that relationship. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it's good news because it's not us working our way back to God, but it's God who came for us. It's God coming for us, opening a way by going to the cross for all people to come back and return to himself. Jesus' death on the cross was brutal. It was brutal. But anything less would be morally insufficient to pay the debt that humans owe for their corruption. The wages of sin has always been death, which is like a death sentence Everyone who has ever lived. But, but, listen, 
Because God is love. God sent Christ. This is our message. To die a death he didn't deserve. To pay a debt he didn't know. Have you ever heard that saying? He died a death he didn't deserve. To pay a debt he didn't owe. Now the world religions, they all say the way to God is self-perfection. Self-perfection. Self-justification. Read it. Read the Dhammapada. Read the sayings of Lao Tzu. Read the Bhagavad Gita. Read the Quran. Jesus says, no, no. The way to God is not something that you can achieve. You cannot work your way back to me. I'm going to have to come to you. And you must receive salvation from me as a gift. As a gift. And we receive the gift because of who he is. Not because of who we are. Or anything that we have done. Uh -uh. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works that we would do so that none of you, none of us could boast. I'm really righteous. I made it. No, that's not happening. I, gotta, I want to finish. I'm going to invite the band to come up right now. And I have one little thing I want to do here. I, I don't know. I don't have this written. I don't know what, exactly what I'm going to say. I've done this a few times. Uh, this is a birthday present. Uh, it's an empty box, actually. We, there was something in it at Samuel Ack's birthday in 2003. But I took what was out and I rewrapped it so I would have a present. Okay. So I can pretend uh, that it's Christmas here this morning. Now, let's say that Elias over here is visiting us on Christmas. This is a picture of the gospel. And Elias comes and I go, hey, I have something for you. And Elias goes, oh, man, you know what? Um, I actually have a lot of cash right now, or I could write you a check. Because Elias is really responsible, okay? I'm going to say, no, no, you put your wallet away. This is crazy. What are you thinking? This is a gift. This is a gift. You either take this as a gift or we leave it here. Okay, there isn't an option on that. There isn't another way than to give salvation as a gift based upon what has been done on the cross. And see, do you see the picture? Every other religion, they want a way where it's not a gift. And Jesus says, nope. And so to rage against God, which so many do for leaving there to be just one way, for making it a narrow way, it's only by grace. You know, to rage against that is to take from 
God, the beautiful meaning of that gift he's wanting to give us of salvation that he bought for us on the the cross. It's to tromp on on this gracious gift to us. And it's, it's so much reducing it to something much less than it is. And people don't, they just don't get that. that that's our job is to explain that. Part of our ministry here in Illini life, maybe the core part of our ministry in Illini life, is to help people overcome the idea that the way could be any other way than that. That it could be any other way. All right, that's our message. That's the gospel. And it's beautiful. And it comes with a promise. Do you have that relationship with God? Um, if you don't, there are people here that can, can gently share with you how you can have that kind of a relationship. Why don't we stand it and thank God for that, that way that he has made for us.